All right. Hey, go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we've not met yet, it's good to have you here. I'm going to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover today, and I don't want to keep you here for very long. Um, but I wanted to start off with a, an exciting thing I'd like to introduce that we're going to be talking about for the next six months specifically, and that is our build-out at the whole Dobbs building downtown. We are, as of now, between 62 and 64 percent having met our goal, our financial goal, to build that spot out. And just to put that into context, we are tracking good, we are doing well and heading in a good direction, but we have quite a gap to close, okay? Um, and I got an idea off of a biography, I think the Lord gave it to me, off a biography I read maybe 10 years ago. In fact, it's the only thing I could remember in this book at all. And it was a book that was written on the life and the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which most of you, if you've been in the church world for very long, you'd hear called the Prince of Preachers. He was good at preaching, sure, but he was great at reaching a city. He was really good at city reaching um, back in the mid-1800s. And one thing I remember in his biography is that when people would come into what was then Metropolitan Tabernacle, they would find chairs with a name plaque on it, like a little name badge sitting on the back with someone's name. They basically bought their own chairs. They sponsored their own seats. And I remember reading it at the time thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Who does that? That's just crazy. The Lord reprised it in my heart here recently as we've been looking at the building, as we've been looking at how we can own not just the building but the neighborhood, which is the chief and primary reason we're heading there into that central city area. I'm excited about the building. It will be cool. It'll be fun. It won't be the high school. That's not really why we're going. We're going because of Central City or what your average Knoxvillean would call downtown north, right? As we look at the budget, one of the biggest line items on our budget probably is not what you would expect. It's chairs, seats. I didn't believe it until I saw it. I thought, there's no way. You can't get chairs. They range between 50 bucks all the way up to $150 per chair, per chair, depending on how many bells and whistles you throw on it. You can get them extra wide, extra cushiony. You can get a little rack on the bottom for whatever chosen book you'd like down there, a little pocket on the back. They can lock. They could be different kinds of fabrics. They could lean. They can not lean. Anything you want, they will make it for you in the church world, right? It's huge. What I thought we would do as a church, and we're, as a staff and as an elder team, we feel like the, the Lord is leading us, is for Legacy to buy its own chairs. I'm going to rip a page straight out of 1800s, straight out of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's playbook, and just say what we'd love for you to consider and what we'll be talking about for the next six months is what we call project hospitality, okay? There's a reason why we're calling it that. We're asking and submitting to every single person at Legacy Church buy their own chair, man, woman, and child, that they purchase not just their own chairs, but the chairs of their neighbors. Let me define what a neighbor is. Because some of you live on lots where it's like an acre and a half before you see your neighbor. You don't even know their names, right? Your neighbor could be anybody or any family that you are praying for, you're believing God for, that you'd like to create a hospitable environment for, right? We're asking that you buy their chairs as well, not just yours. So let me put it into perspective. The chairs we're looking at, we need about $60 a chair, right? Which with the scale I just gave you, that's like the Ford Escort of chairs, they're nice, but they're not like super duper nice that lean back and have a cup holder. They don't have anything like that. They're going to get us there. It's going to look nice, but they're 60 bucks a chair, okay? I have a family of five. 
That's $300. There's five other people that I've been praying for that are far from Jesus. I've been doing life with that are far from Jesus that I want to create a hospitable area for them, and that's going to be another $300 for me. That's $600 that I'm going to give above and beyond what I'm already giving to a building project. You see, our desire, I'll just say our ability, our ability to be a missionary church in Knoxville, it stops where our hospitality stops. It stops where our hospitality stops. When we want somebody to come into our home and feel loved and feel valued and feel like hospitality is greeting them, we want to create a place for them to sit. Here's a couch, here's a chair, here's a meal. We want to create an environment where they know there's peace, where they know that they're welcome, where they know that they're going to get handled well. We're just trying to do the same thing in a part of town where people are fleeing out of, where people are leaving, and hospitality is not as fluent there as you would maybe think. We want to create something not just in our living rooms, which is what we're big on here, but we want to create something even in a Sunday morning gathering. The most basic form of hospitality, friends, is giving people a place to sit, a place to put their butts, okay? So what we would like to do in Project Hospitality is have a church buy their own seats and the seats for the people that they are praying and believing God and even fasting for that they would come and sit their butts in those seats as we gather. Now, having attendance in a church service on Sunday morning, not the win. It does not equal win. It does not. But it is part of the picture. It is part of the picture. Attendance is something we are excited about. We do want butts in the seat because those butts represent people. <laughs> and they're hearing the gospel message. It is part of the picture. So, all of that being said, it also speaks to our culture of not just being active in the city, but being active on Sunday morning, which is important here in East Tennessee. And now, listen, I know this might be tough for some of you because you're already doing the math in your head. You're already sizing up how big your family is and the people that you love in the city that you'd like to provide a place for. What this pledge does is it allows you to build it out between now and December. I just said I have $600 I'm going to put on this project, which means I can break it up into 100 bucks a month for the next six months because December 31st is our goal date. That's when we want to have all the money raised for this building, 150% of it done by then. And it allows you to break it up and piecemeal it out. I think this helps because it's different from just you writing a check to Legacy and saying, you guys do with whatever you need. You need drywall or a, a toilet or whatever. You buy it. You guys get to own it. You get to walk into a place and say, those 10 seats over there or this little area right over here, there are 10 seats in this place that I bought, that I've been praying for. Praying not just for my family to come and grow and learn and hear the gospel, but for the families around me. Okay? So let me explain how we've created a venue for you to do this. If you were to go to LegacyKnoxville.com, our website, the very first web page that's right there in your face, it says Project Hospitality, okay? Do you have that slide you could put up, Christian, the project? Okay, those are not the chairs we're buying. That one looks like it has lice or something. It was just a cool picture, so I grabbed it, right? <laughs> not the chairs. But when you go to the website, you will see that picture. If you click on it, it takes you straight to a form inside of our website, and it describes the three things we need, so you wanna listen carefully. We need chairs, which I've just gone over and described. We also need money outside of the chairs, okay? Because we're still needing to close the gap on some big expenses that we have for our build-out. So we need chairs, we need funds, and we need sweat. We need sweat. 
Now, I brought this up a few months ago, and I had a lot of people come up and say, I feel like I can hang a little bit of drywall. I can grind or polish some concrete. I know how to install doors. I can help you build a stage. I can paint a wall. I can do an artistic installation. I can do these things. What we need you to do is we need you to put that in the form so that we can build that database. Everyone that fills out that form, it automatically populates a database for us. When we see that database, we can build teams, contact the teams, get them placed on a calendar, get the work done, okay? But we need you to fill it out. We need you to fill out that form. It also asks you how many chairs you plan on buying. Even if you haven't bought them all, chairs that you pledge and plan on buying between now and December, once you've pledged, what we're gonna ask you to do is every single Sunday between now and the time we leave this place, we'll have a chair up here. Also not the chairs we're buying, by the way, right? This one's plastic, it doesn't even look like, I mean, if you're over 150 pounds, do not even attempt to sit in this. I can't vouch for it. But you'll see my signature's on there, my wife's, my son's, my daughter's have yet to put theirs up there. We're gonna ask you to sign these chairs. We have two more just like it, and we're probably gonna fill all three of them, I'm sure. When we have the new building, we will install them as a greeting piece for the city when they walk in. It will say, you are welcome here or we've been waiting for you, or something of an invitation, and then we will prove it. Because we sweat, and we bled, and we sacrifice deeply to make this happen. Does this make sense? So feel free to email if you have any questions. You will hear this time and time again as the months go on, but I wanted to introduce it today. And, and if it's okay, I'd love to pray for it real quickly before we jump into the sermon. I know I've spent a lot of time, I've actually spent more time than I wanted to talking about this, but I'm super excited about it, right? I'm super excited that I get to do something that Spurgeon got to do, right? And it's going to help us get downtown. Father, we thank you so much for being good to us. Lord, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it happened. But at some point in time, in the early 1990s, somebody wrote a check that bought a chair in Midland, Texas, that I sat on when I heard the gospel for the first time. I felt welcome. I felt loved. I felt at peace. They extended grace to me, even though I was an outsider. Father, we are looking to do that right in the middle of Knoxville, a part of Knoxville that I believe is bleeding the deepest, even today. God, that you would not just create a space for us there, but you'd create a church that is hospitable to the culture around it. A church that does not just say, we have a, a chair if you want to sit in it, but a people that say, I have bled to provide this chair for you, and I will do whatever it takes to get you to come and be a part. And not of just this chair, but the chair in my living room as well, and the chair in my car. Lord, we love you so much, and we ask for your blessing over this that it would not just be a stupid gimmick to raise money. Not interested in that. And we're not interested in just a building, Father. You know our hearts. Lord, we, we are hungry for a neighborhood. We are hungry to move into where people are leaving. We're hungry to do it for your glory, not for our own. We're not hungry to do it for our comfort. We're hungry to do it to make you famous and to help people see what you look like just a little bit more clearly. Because you created a hospitable place for us. You've given us a seat at your table, Father, and someone else purchased that seat. I did not purchase that chair that I sat at it. When, when I go to the banqueting table in one day and take a communion with my king, I did not buy that seat. You did. So, Father, we're asking that we could image that. We could raise this money 
we can get downtown. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, turn to John 5 today. And like I said, I'm going to jump in. There's some things I'd like to talk about at the end um, regarding the shootings this week and maybe help you a little bit as a church. Um, I've needed help. But I think God has providentially given us a target passage as we've been staying with series on John. I feel like providentially this passage is going to frame and lead how we pray here in just a little bit, okay? John 5, we're going to be in verse 19. You know, Mark Twain, he once said in his famous Mark Twain kind of a way that God has made man in his own image, but ever since then we've been trying to return the favor and make God in our image, right? So in that vein, an artist a couple years ago started polling all kinds of people, hundreds of people, on what they felt God visually looked like. Like, what does God look like? And then he created an infographic and published it in the Jewish Daily Forward. Now, some of the answers um, I kind of figured that, that I would see in that infographic. One was Santa Claus. The other is clouds. Do we have a picture of clouds you could put up there? This is what God looks like to many people, right? That looks like the front of about eight out of 10 Christian books ever published right there, right there. That's their clip art. <laughs> Another one that I thought was interesting was Zeus from Fantasia. Yeah, there he is. That's God, in case you didn't know it. Abraham Lincoln was one. My favorite two, however, Kenny Rogers got a lot of votes. Kenny Rogers, listen, I've played way too much poker to take that seriously, way too much poker. And then my favorite of all time, Morgan Freeman, because that looks like a guy who's in total control of things right there. I mean, if that's not God, I don't know who is, right? A lot of people said Jesus, though, which is kind of, sort of, the right answer. Whether or not God looks visually like Jesus, we know Jesus is the exact image of God. We know this. Colossians, Paul tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. He is the image of the invisible God, period. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing God in all of his glory. We forget this. Even earlier in this book of John, in the 14th verse of the first chapter, don't flip back, it just says, and the word became flesh. Now, right before that, it said that the word was God. So God becomes flesh, where we can see it with our eyes. He dwells among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So sure, when we see Jesus in the Bible, we're seeing God, God in all of his glory. But is Mark Twain right? Do we still try to make God look like us? I think it's a question worth asking. I think modern culture today, it displays this tendency quite often. I think secular culture, when they conceive of Jesus, he ends up being this super chilled out, laid back surfer Jesus who lives in a van somewhere, only hates hate, says the word love a bunch, right? Hashtags everything. That's the kind of version of Jesus that our culture has. And I think mankind today does this for one reason. That Jesus doesn't judge. Doesn't judge. That Jesus isn't going to judge you. That's Simpsons Jesus. Now, he'll surf with you. He'll hang out in the van with you. He'll high-five you. He'll accept everyone. But that's about it. Listen, as missionaries... And let me qualify this. We are all missionaries if we are Christians. 
if you were a Christian, you were either a missionary or you were an imposter. You might be a very bad missionary. Granted, that might be the case. You might struggle in it, but you are a missionary. We are all carried to extend the gospel to broken people as it was done for us. We are all missionaries, right? But as missionaries, we're not carrying an image of Jesus to a people who have no idea who Jesus is. That's not happening. It's not like we're parachuting into a desert island, right? And nobody's ever heard the word Jesus spoken. They don't have a Bible. They don't even, have never even seen a Bible. That's not what's happening. We're bringing Jesus to a culture who already has a conception of who Jesus is. We're much more closer to, to refashioning who Jesus looks like to the people around us. You see, we carry the message of the gospel where Jesus is the hero of that story to a culture where Jesus isn't much of a hero. He's more of a bobblehead on a dashboard or something like that. That's our job as missionaries. So let me ask you a question before I get into this. How would you like Jesus to look more like you? It's an odd question, isn't it? I never really asked myself this question until the last week or two. Where do I want Jesus to look more like me? Some of you are already faking and copping out of that question. I don't want Jesus to look like me. I want him to look like I. You do. Everybody wants Jesus to look a little bit more like them in the areas where they struggle to look like him. Whether it's how you work, play, handle people, handle your mouth, your eyes, your money, wherever it is that you struggle imaging God and his good news to us, that's where you're gonna want him to look a little bit more like you. That's what our bent nature does. Because if God's standard comes really close to our standard, and his bar of righteousness is pretty close to our bar of righteousness, then we don't have to change very much. We don't have to shift very far. We don't have to lay down very much. We don't have to die to anything. We're pretty much already there, and that's what we want. Because every now and then, you and I prefer surfer Jesus. We want bobblehead Jesus every now and then. Just in certain key areas, we want him to bend to look more like us then we will bend to look like him. So let me just read this in the 19th. Someone hand me a Bible. I didn't bring it up here with me for some reason. Someone throw me a Bible. Just pitch it from there. <laughs> That's a nice one. <laughs> Don't throw that. Thanks, buddy. I'm sorry. My eyes are bad. Okay, John 5. This is a great Bible. Thanks for it, man. <laughs> I've always wanted one like this. Verses 19 in chapter 5. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If we could just pause just for a moment right there. What, just to summarize what Jesus is saying, because that can be a little bit hard to decrypt for some people. He says that my will mirrors my Father's will. Jesus is saying, I'm watching his heartbeat, I'm listening to his direction, and that becomes my compass. Whatever my father is about, I am about, right? And he has given me the ability to judge. 
And he's doing that so that you honor me as much as you honor my Father in heaven. That's what he's saying. He's saying that God shows him everything because he loves him. You know, so what we see here is we see something interesting. We see Jesus showing two competing thoughts. The two competing thoughts are hard for you and I to reconcile. One is that God the Father and God the Son in the person of Jesus are equal in all glory and equal in all honor, yet Jesus is subordinate to God the Father, and he is following God the Father. We're seeing both. In our language today and in our culture, to be subordinate to one means to have less glory and less honor, right? I mean, if I'm subordinate to you and I'm following you, you get more glory and you get more honor. That's why we have a hard time with passages like this. That's why God gives Jesus, I believe, one of a few key roles, gives them entirely to Jesus to do. So God the Father is doing things through the person of Jesus entirely, like creation. Creation was done entirely through the person of Jesus. And here, Jesus says, judgment is given to me as well. Judgment is given entirely to me so that you would honor me as much as you honor my Father. In fact, if you don't honor me, you don't honor my Father at all. This is important for you and me. God loves it when we honor the Son as much as we honor the Father. We'll see this in Philippians 2. Paul says this. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is saying, honoring me is honoring God. God the Father is saying, honoring my son is honoring me. So Jesus is subordinate to his Father, but he's not beneath his Father. Now there's a little bit of a who cares aspect of that kind of a theological teaching because I don't really know, Luke, how that applies to my normal life, and I understand that. I think lots of people struggle with this teaching, and it renders out a kind of Jesus that is small g a little bit more than big g. He is God, but almost like a diet God because he follows and he is subordinate to God the Father. And as missionaries, once again, you and I, as missionaries, we live in a city that is not so against Jesus, but that's because the Jesus they view looks a whole lot like them. That's why they're not against Jesus. It strips him of his glory. It strips Jesus of his honor when he is little g and he is subordinate. Think about it. If Jesus, God, looks like Kenny Rogers and acts like a cartoon character, just not gonna get a whole lot of glory and honor. It also, and this is just as important, strips value from the gospel. The gospel becomes valueless whenever God is not glorious in the person of Jesus. If God is not glorious and full of honor in the person of Jesus, then that keeps God up in the clouds, rubbing his beard, just kind of frowning, wondering why we all can't get along, wondering why we don't just stop shooting each other. But when God himself, God in all of his glory and honor, inhabits Full man comes to earth, lives among us, and dwells among us. Well, now you've got value in the good news. Now it's become valuable for you and me. John 1.14, and the word became flesh. God became full God, became full flesh, and lives among us. And we have seen his glory, and that's the fullness. Let's look at verse 24. I'm going to move on. Verse 24, truly, 
Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I could do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Just unpack that. Jesus is saying, those who believe in what I say and they trust in my words, they leave one realm and they enter another, and that's happening right now. Right now, the dead are becoming alive. Right now, that's happening. Also talks about how he can judge. He can execute judgment perfectly for these reasons. He is the son of man. That means he's fully man. He's not just fully God, right? He has been given the right by his father to judge humanity, and his will is not his own but his father's. And those three things make him a perfect judge. He's a perfect judge that renders a perfect judgment, and that's important for you and I, really important, because we live in a culture today where nobody wants to be judged. Nobody wants to be measured or appraised or spoken to on that level. Don't judge me. That's something that we all say all the time, right? Even when we're joking around. I just did it the other day. Someone was all, uh, all crazed out that I don't eat jalapenos. Well, didn't you live in Texas? Yeah, I grew up in Texas. And you don't eat jalapenos? Yeah, don't judge me, right? I like Bon Jovi still. I know he's old. Don't judge me. We all have those little things. We don't feel like someone else has the right to judge us, nor do they understand us very well. But it can get real serious really quick. I don't identify with the sex I was born with. Don't judge me, right? I want to marry whoever I want to marry. Don't judge me. I'm mad at how the police are handling my community. You don't understand. Don't judge me. I'm mad as a police officer over how I'm handled. Don't judge me. You see, it's real and it's in all of us. Nobody wants to be judged because we feel like no one has the right, A, to speak to us on that level, and B, no one understands. You don't have the qualification. You don't have the credentials to speak to me as if you know. And even if you did understand, no one's given you the right to do that. The problem with humanity is no one has the right to judge them. Nobody does. We're all on our own. See, Jesus is the perfect judge. That's what this passage is telling us. And he totally understands our plight because he was fully God, yes, as we've already looked at, but he is also fully man. He is fully man. This is brilliant. Think about how brilliant this is in God's design. They would have us all judged by one of our own. By one of our own. Who understands temptation, who suffered, suffered to a place where we benefit even at his loss. Brilliant is that? How thoughtful is that? That the prime judge of all humanity will lock gaze with all of us in humanity and say, I understand. Every single thing you suffered, I understand because I suffered the same temptations you did, although I didn't fail. I'm qualified to judge you, God says. I have the credentials. 
I'm qualified because the right was given me to do this. And I'm fully man, so I totally understand. Not only that, he wasn't even judging according to his own will, his own desire, his own heart, but it was according to his father's. This is something I find fascinating. He had no little side project, no little agenda on his own, nothing to filter how he judges one way or the other. He judges perfectly because he's a perfect judge. You know, my last two years in college, I had one little block of time that I could not get filled. I couldn't fill it with work. I couldn't fill it with class. And I just wasn't going to study. You know what I'm saying? It was just this open block of time. It just stayed open for two years. I'll tell you what was going on at that time, though. People's court. I would go to my friend's, my, my friend's dorm room, and we'd sit there and eat anything that was in his fridge, and we would watch the original People's Court, Judge Wapner coming out, right? He'd sit down, and then you'd hear the narrator kind of talking about the next case. Dun, dun, dun. You see the people coming down, and I tell you, we would sit there, and we would levy a judgment before they even opened their mouth. I knew who was guilty before they even started. You want to tell you? It's how they dressed. How did they hold themselves? Did they come in? Did it look like they, they groomed themselves that day? I felt like that was kind of important. A person that grooms themselves is starting off on the right foot compared to the guy who just rolled out of bed and threw some sweats on, right? Are they saying, yes, your honor, no, your honor? Do they have a manila folder with sheets that are stapled and pictures and receipts and things? That's the person that always wins. That's how I would make judgments. You see how jaded that is? Before they even open their mouth, I know who's going to win that because that's what I would do because I have my own agenda, and I have a filter. That's how we all judge. Jesus, not so. Jesus didn't judge like that. He understands perfectly. He judges perfectly. And who is it that he judges? All of us. It says in this passage that all who are in the tombs will be resurrected. This is where this passage becomes incredibly relevant to all of us, because unless Jesus comes back first, all of you will die and all of you will be raised, right? We are eternal beings. We lose no continuity. We maintain continuity as part of God's plan. All of us, Daniel 2, or Daniel 12, we actually see God's prophesying of this through Daniel, and he says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And from this resurrection, where we are all resurrected, some of us will be quickened into paradise and eternal life, and some of us will be found in a place where there is no hope left for eternity. Now, why does John report this? Because this, to me, I've read this passage, I don't know how many times. This feels like the curveball. Why would he stick this in there? Right? I think he stuck it in there for the same reason he's sticking anything in this book. He says in the very last chapter, everything I've written, I've written so that you may believe and that you may have life. So that you may believe in the words of Jesus and that you may have life. And I don't think this is any different. This is what John Piper says on this passage. He says, stand in awe of Jesus. Stand in awe of the power of his voice. When he speaks in his office as creator, nothingness obeys. And when he speaks in his office as one who raises the dead, decomposed matter obeys. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Bow your heart down and worship this Christ, is that we may have life. Certainly, we're going to come into the picture soon of Lazarus coming out of a tomb. In that hour, 
Jesus was showing us the last hour, whereby the voice of the Son of Man and the purest judge of all will speak, and we will come out of our tombs in order to be rightly judged and divided by a perfect judge. That's what that's a picture of. Let me move on. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What Jesus is doing here is he's showing his resume his credentials to the hard-hearted, which is a form of love to them, by the way. All of that was a good ripping. It sounded like a ripping, didn't it? It was a form of grace. It was grace that he did this. He says, I'm described in the Old Testament. You guys ground and pound the scriptures all the time. You nerd out over it. You have your nerd conferences. You talk about nerdy things in nerdy ways, and you study and you memorize, and you study and you memorize, but you're missing me. It's pointing here. He's telling them, look at it. I'm the bronze serpent hoisted up on a different pole that all who are bitten by a snake look to me and have the poison removed and live forever. He says, he says I'm, I'm the perfect Passover lamb whose blood is not just put on a, on a door of a house, but it's put on the door of a heart that you may live as the angel of death passes by you and you become a different nation. I'm the Samson in the picture who did more in his death than he ever did his life with his arms outstretched as his taunters mocked and tortured him. I'm the better Esther. I'm the better Abraham. I'm the better Jonah. Look at the Bible that you study so much and see that it does not point to me. He's saying that's a credential. Another thing he points at is John the Baptist. And we saw that all the time. The whole first part of John is, is thick in this. John spent a lot of time saying, hey, listen, guys, I'm standing in a puddle of water. It is what it is, but there's going to be one that comes after me. He's going to baptize people with fire. And that's going to be a little bit crazy. And then one day he says, there he is. That's the one, the Lamb of God. Old Testament vouches for him. John the Baptist vouches for him. His own miraculous works vouch for him, he says. Do you see how thick it is? How he's just laying out case after case. Fevers are reduced. Little kids coming back to life. People walking. Wine being made. Death denied. 
The works are doing it. And then he says, Moses vouches for me as well. This was the ace card. <laughs> to us, it's not as, it's not as uh, I guess, poignant. But, but it, back then, this would have been a big deal. This would have quieted the room. This is what God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. I will write, and this is what he was talking about, by the way. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, God says, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Case after case after case after case. Yet these scholars, as smart as they are, as brilliant as they are, and they were smart and they were brilliant, they refuse him. Why? Why? Because they wanted somebody that looked a little bit more like them. They didn't want Jesus to make them look a little bit more like him. And that's why they became refusers instead of receivers. He doesn't look like them. That's why Jesus says this odd little thing. You might have caught it. If a man vouching for himself comes, you accept him. You take him. Why? Why does that happen? Because when somebody comes that is like us or that represents us or that's similar to us, if we glorify and honor them, we get a little bit of that glory and honor as well. You've caught people doing that? When they celebrate somebody, they're celebrating that person, but they're also celebrating themselves a little bit. There's plenty of glory to go around, right? And that's how we like to honor people. This is why we want our presidents to come from the working class. We don't want them going to Princeton. We don't want them going to Yale. We want them going to Tennessee Tech with calluses on their hands that, that have held a minimum wage job and know what it feels like to have a short paycheck. That's how we want our presidents. Because if we can elevate that person and glorify that person, then it kind of helps us a little bit as well. That's why we want our celebrity athletes to come from our hometown, from humble beginnings, right? So they look like us. Because if that person's pulling it off, then we get to share in some of that glory, at least a little bit. This is why we want God to look like us. Same thing. We want Jesus to look like us so that when we honor Jesus, it brings a little bit of honor our way as well. I'm seeing a lot of status updates, a lot of status updates, talking about what Jesus would be hashtagging right now. Jesus would be hashtagging blue lives matter if he was alive today. He'd be hashtagging, he'd be saying black lives matter, all lives matter. He wouldn't be saying anything. Seems like a lot of people know what Jesus would be saying right now. It's funny, funny to me, how it looks a whole lot like what they are wanting to hashtag and what they are wanting to say. It doesn't take much for us to get God to bend our way because it hurts too bad for us to bend his way. It's too tough. It's too difficult. Accepting a God that looks like us approves of our own life. We don't need to shift. We don't need to change. But if we accept the suffering son of man, if we do that, that means laying down a large part of our life. And these leaders don't want Jesus to look like God. They want them to look like them so they wouldn't have to change. That's what's going on here. That's why he says that. He came as this suffering, no-name servant, holding God the Father a little too close for them, reading the Bible a little too literally for them, breaking the wrong kind of rules for them. He came exposing hearts, and what it did is it provoked them to look at themselves, see the amount of change, death, and loss needed in their own life, and it was easier to refuse than it is to receive. And that has not changed. I read this passage, 
and I see myself. In these leaders, I see a little bit of a mirror. To be very honest with you, it's a lot easier for me to refuse than it is to receive. It's a lot easier. I can see all that Jesus does. I can see how everything points to him. I can see his long resume, and yet I too can refuse to go to him because it's just gonna hurt too much for me to put my life down, to change. The same fallen condition in their lives beats in my chest. Because if I yield to Jesus, and I mean totally yield, that means I gotta lay a lot of things down. It'd be much easier if he just bent my way, as Mark Twain says. If I could fashion him after my mold, then my bar doesn't have to move very far. You know, there's this book I'm reading right now. I've just finished it. It has nothing to do with any of this. But it has this plug-and-play formula that I think it fits like every aspect of life. It fits how to become a, a disciple and grow as a disciple, how to grow as a leader, um, how to grow as, as in your health or as an athlete, you know. Um, the, the name of the book is called Leadership Pain. It's written by a guy named Samuel Chand, C-H-A-N-D. He's an East Indian leadership development guy, and I'm learning a lot from him, but in this book, it's written around one thesis, and it is this, growth equals change equals loss equals pain, okay? Growth, that means being different tomorrow than we are today. It requires us changing something. Something's got to change. We just can't keep doing the same thing, right? We just can't do the same thing. I mean, we're going to have to decrease in something to increase in another thing. Our arms can only hold so much. That's the idea. But change actually means loss. That means we're going to have to put some stuff down. Less Candy Crush, less Netflix, less sleeping early, less sleeping late, whatever it is. Something's got to die so that you can pick up something else which defines change, which leads you to growth. The problem with that is to lose something is painful. Do you see how that works? The punchline of the book is to grow is going to be painful. <laughs> see? It's not that complicated. To grow, it's going to be painful. And are we not seeing that in this passage? The loss of personal glory was too painful for those leaders, yet it can be that painful for me too. For me too. I'm just like these men. I want human praise. I want to be in control. I want to be somebody. I want my ideas to matter. And I want, I want Jesus' ideas to look a lot like my ideas. I want his values to look like my values. And without God's grace on me, I become one of these leaders. I'm given into that. Without God's grace. You see, if Jesus looked like me, he'd be totally cool with me elevating myself. And if Jesus is totally cool with me elevating myself, well, then I'm cool with Jesus, as he's cool with me, as I'm cool with him. And if he's cool with me being a big deal, then I'm cool with him being a big deal. You see how we like to pat people on the back who are patting us on the back? But Jesus is not cool with me elevating myself. And he is not cool with these leaders acting as they were acting. His life demands a level of change, which means loss, which means pain. Jesus is calling us to look like him. And if we cannot handle this type of humble death in our lives, we will, like these leaders, refuse the very life-giving words of God himself. We will refuse them. We will become refusers, not receivers. He wants me to trust more. I want to trust. He wants me to lay down my life more, a whole lot more than I want to lay it down. He wants me to be more humble than I feel comfortable being. And that kind of change, it, it hurts. In fact, it's death to me. So what we're about to do is this. I'm going to lead you in communion. 
as we drive this thing into a close. And typically, I don't lead you into communion. Typically, what I'd rather you do is just take that time with your own family or your community group or your loved ones or your roommates or whatever and take that time to pray. What I'd like to do today is just give you a couple things to swing at while you're back there. You see, we don't know what God visually looked like, although I doubt it was Kenny Rogers. We don't really know what God looked like. What I mean is, is I don't know what skin color he had. I don't know if it's Mediterranean or darker than Mediterranean or black or white. I don't know. But I know we have a symbol on those tables of a body, a body that was broken and torn apart and punctured and tortured and then murdered for our benefit. Right? I don't know what blood type he had. And he had a blood type. He was fully man. I don't know what it was. But we have a symbol of blood that was spilt for you and for me at his cost, at our benefit. That's what we have. And that's for all of God's people. If you do not love Jesus or you're not a part of God's church, we just invite you to take Jesus instead of the elements that represent Jesus, to take him instead. But that's what we have. And while you're back there, I'd love you to think about these three things, repent, thank, and change. Repent is very simple. As I said, I want to play like I want to play. And I want to work like I want to work. And I want to handle people like I want to. And it's just easier if Jesus looks more like me so I don't have to feel a little bit ick inside and know I need to change. So I need to repent for that. The in, the undesire to lay my life down, to humbly lay myself down. Where do you struggle living a disciple's life right now? Could it be where you'd rather Jesus just look like you? Do those things intersect at all? They do for me. It's a bit spooky. I think about the areas where I just not doing so great. And then I think about the areas where I'd much rather Jesus just look like me, and they typically are the same area. Then we have much to thank God for as we're done repenting, and that is that Jesus is the Son of Man for our sake. He grasped suffering so that you and I would not. This is the brilliant part about the God. This is one of the things that makes the gospel astounding to me, incredible to me. In God's courtroom of righteousness, the Christian is not declared innocent, but guilty. It is the judge that steps off of the bench to take the guilty person's sentence. You weren't innocent. You didn't have a good defender. I've seen people paint the gospel that way. Incorrect. Incorrect. Jesus was not your attorney. That's goofy. Jesus was the judge. We see it in this passage. All judgment given to him. Guilty, he says to us. And then he steps off, takes the robe off, and takes the punishment that was due us, even though he did nothing. That's a valuable gospel. There's much to be thankful for. Much to be thankful for. And the best part about that is, if that's not good enough, your failure to change, your failure to love and image God radically, does not end up and result in his failure to love you. He does not reciprocate based on our ability to change. If you screw up from here on till the day you die, he loves you as much as he loved you from day one. His grace is unwavering. There's a lot to thank God about. A lot. And then we have change. We repent, we thank, and we change. This is the toughest one for me today, and I'll explain why. Our current generation 
and culture despises the idea of being judged. Because most of us in this room and most of Knoxville doesn't feel like anyone has the right nor the credentials nor the experience or the understanding to judge. So Knoxville would tell the church, don't judge me. And to a large part, the church just capitulates. You got it. Hey, calm down. Calm down. We won't judge. You want to marry whoever you want? We'll do it for you. We'll build 16 bathrooms. We'll do whatever it takes to not hurt your feelings. The church is capitulating. You're going to see it more and more as time goes on as well. Our voice has to be different. Our voice back to the city needs to be one that represents a gospel of value, a valuable gospel, one where the judge steps down, but he is the judge. (laughs) He is the judge. He judges perfectly, and he is a perfect representation of God himself because he is God himself. You know, just as a quick application before we stand up and pray, just a quick application to that that happens to be timely is the shootings that have happened this week, okay? A lot of shootings that have happened this week, even all the way up to Bristol, Tennessee. It's right in our backyard, right? And I'm watching our culture and what it's provoking. It's provoking some key things, and I know everyone in this room has seen it. It's producing anger, a lot of anger right now, a lot of it rightful. The black community is angry right now at what is happening, and they should be. Law enforcement and those who are families of first responders are angry about what's going on, and they should be. There's a lot of anger. But then there's a lot of awkwardness, too. Are you catching that? People don't know what to do with this. You probably don't know how to interact with this. I'm with you. Struggling on how to interact. I'm seeing some people thanking and hugging police officers, and then I'm seeing some people rebuke them because they're not repenting and owning things that they haven't even done. I'm seeing some people wondering, should I apologize for the white privilege that I've lived in for so long, or should I just stand on my own two feet and deny that I've ever even benefited from any kind of white privilege? It's complicated, isn't it? Anger. See some awkwardness. Seeing a lot of action. I'm not quite sure what this action is producing right now. And I'll tell you why. Be careful. Be careful of action that precedes any kind of prayer. Be very careful. When you have activism without prayer, you just have man's solutions to man's problem. We have a pretty poor track record for that as humanity, right? A lot of activism. And what it usually ends up fizzling out, dying into some petition or rally somewhere. It's kind of the best we can do as mankind. Or take away guns or educate police officers. There are these odd little ill-fitting pieces that are supposed to fix man's problems. It's activism. But prayer without activism is just laziness of the church. It's failure, really, of the church. You have to have both. You have to have activism that is spurred and led from prayer. An honest prayer, a plural prayer. We're about to do something like that today. But I'll be honest with you, just to give you a peek inside of a pastor's life, this is a difficult thing to do. It's not just white pastors that I do life with. They're black pastors. You know what they're doing today? They're struggling, communicating with their people, fighting over how to help them engage this. It's awkward. And when I ask them, what are you guys doing? 
They're like, I don't know. I'm sure there's a petition rolling around somewhere. I'll have to read it and make sure it's not a total spit in the face of what we believe too, but they don't know whether it needs to be a petition. They don't know whether it needs to be a rally somewhere. They just know something has to happen, and that's kind of where all pastors are right now. They just know something needs to happen. They just don't know quite what, and the reason they're like that is because that's where you're at. You're in the same place. The one thing I can do as a pastor, because I'm not a politician, the one thing I can do as a pastor is lead you to pray, lead you to see Jesus is triumphant, God is one, and this is not new to him, right? So we could pray along those lines. Because we need the gospel. We don't need better education for our police force. We might need that, but we definitely need the gospel. Having something take listen, take away the guns, take away the knives, we'll fork each other to death. We will find a way to destroy each other. We need the gospel. The gospel is what cracks racism off. The gospel is what destroys unforgiveness and hate and racism. That is a gospel change. So when we pray today, in light of the, the text that you've just been presented with, pray that God changes your heart. I've had to take a really deep, long, hard look at my own life and say, where do I need to change in regards even to this? I've acted like I've had it figured out. I'm listening to some people I don't typically listen to, and I'm weighing what they say, and I'm realizing I don't know that I have it all figured out. What does that mean for me? Where do I need to lay some things and, and, and die a little bit? Where am I trying to get God to bend closer to me, even when it comes to race relations and city reaching? How, how does that work? So as we pray today as a church, before we go in and, and, and sing, you'll have songs, you'll have an opportunity to give, you'll have an opportunity to take communion. Before we even get into any of that, I want to pray with you that God would change our hearts and that God would help us as a church and as the church in Knoxville do something, do some active, activate out of prayer towards race relations even in Knoxville. Super important. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to lead you in prayer as the team comes out. I love you all very much. Thank you for being patient with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, that you are a perfect judge and you are always in control. You are in control, God. I wake up every morning and I go straight to a newspaper to see did somebody get shot while I was sleeping? Was somebody shot? Did a mother lose a child? Our kid's not going to have a dad come home now. Where was it at? Is it close to home? And I feel like things are out of control, personally, honestly. God, they're not. You win. You're in total control. You are defeating death. You are now defeating racism. You are defeating pain. You are defeating murder. You are changing cities. God, that we would be a part. And I know that means our heart needs to change. My heart needs to change. Our hearts need to change, Lord. I want to pray for Brent Thompson. He's 43 years old and he was shot in Dallas. He was recently married. I want to pray for Patrick Zamaripa, who was 32 and he was a father of two, shot in Dallas. Michael Kroll, he's 40 years old, known as a hard worker, shot in Dallas. Lauren Ahrens, 48 years old, dedicated to the city, community service, was shot 
in Dallas. Michael Smith was 55 years old, known as a family man by those who known and loved him, shot in Dallas. Alton Sterling, father, husband, shot in Baton Rouge. Philando Castillo, shot in Falcon Heights. They even love to pray for the officers that shot those men. Father, just to say their names is not enough. And Lord, just to pray, I know is not enough. Action is required. Help us, Father, individually and corporately know what that means. How to embrace a community that is reeling, even if it's reeling and doing the wrong things. How do we embrace? How do we lead? How do we serve? How do we look like you, God? Father, I don't want to be a leader that leads a church where we just do nothing but bend you closer to our opinions. What do we need to do to lay down to bend closer to what you are thinking in this moment? Give us the heart of God for this city and for different, different groups of people, even now, even today. Father, as we pray for these men, pray for their families, pray for the communities that they came from. Lord, that your gospel would be known. Yes, there's going to be mourning. There's going to be rallies. I'm sure of it. There's going to be petitions. There's going to be T-shirts made, and politicians are going to speak, and it's going to become a. It's going to stay along. I understand that, but Father, that your gospel would be pronounced and elevated, that you would be clung to, that you would be held tightly in this time. Lord, you are so good to us as we take communion, and as we sing, and as we pray. Father, in this awkwardness that we find ourselves in, whether we are white, black, or otherwise, the awkwardness that we find ourselves in right now, Lord, that you would help us cling to you. Show us that you, you are in control and that you will lead your people. The harvest is still plentiful. It's still plentiful, and the laborers are still few. Lord, you're so good to us. We thank you for being a judge, a good judge. We thank you for calling life out of death. We thank you for doing this for us, totally despite us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.